Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. You're here today with me, David Forsyth, and my co-host, Todd Lucas, from the as-yet-unreleased Movies by Minute podcast, Edge of Tomorrow Minute. We're here to discuss Minute 76 of Into the Night, which opens on Monsieur Melville, gun in hand, discussing a superb man in the back of his limo and ends with Diana leaving the same limo. So, um, I guess full disclosure here that, uh, Todd is in addition to being my co-host, also my cousin. Um, so he's the, the, uh, podcast co-host I've known my entire life, I guess. Yeah. That's one way you could describe me. We've been doing this for a long time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's generally not on podcasts. We just, uh, Usually BS about uh, movies uh, and anime and comics and role-playing games and all those kinds of nerdy things that tend to get podcasted about these days. So We would have been really cool if this was around when we were like 15. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we would have been. Super popular on the tubes. So. We were cutting edge at one point. Now we're just kind of old and out of touch, I guess, right? Yeah. I think we were out of touch. Uh, uh, this movie by itself, I did not even know it existed until we were contacted about this. Yeah, and it's really strange that we missed it because in in the mid-80s, we would typically spend good portions of the summers together and watch a lot of movies, either you know rented videos or uh, cable or even video discs at one point, right? Like we Briefly, briefly, yes. <laughs> I was trying to think back to some of the movies that we watched a lot um, as kids and stuff that came to mind almost immediately were things like Commando, Weird Science, Breakfast Club, Fright Night, and all of those are 1985 movies. Right. And I never heard of this movie. I mean, I was watching movies, you know, 18 hours a day during the summers right then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, right. So you'd wake up, have breakfast while you're watching a movie and go outside for a while, come back inside and watch a movie, have lunch and go back outside and come in and have dinner and watch a few movies and until you somebody forces you to go to bed and then you watch another movie or two and yeah i mean it's yeah, or, it passed the days but uh, yeah i just i wish i had actually seen this back then because i knew just as many of these uh, cameos that everyone's talking about back then as i do now if that makes right. any sense <laughs> right right so the the ones you you know you you know well but then there's some that are sort of mysteries and uh, you know, a lot of the other hosts have, have talked over some of the, the, the cameos and sort of how they came to be and, you know, the theory that they were here to support Landis in his uh, post-Twilight Zone litigation era. Um, I like to believe that one myself. It's, it, it's, it's happy. You, know, you don't get a lot of happy stories out of stuff like that. Yeah, true. Uh, the, the nice thing about this minute here, actually the whole set of minutes that we're doing this week, is that it movie has kind of a convoluted plot and you'll you kind of see that as it it goes through and a lot a lot of the hosts have, have talked about that as well but this chunk of minutes really covers a complete gambit from beginning to end i think you know it it's sort of the main arc of melville here and, and you see well you, you see some interesting changes in both ed and diana and you know i think this is a good chunk of minutes to to sort of talk about in a, in a contained five minute week. So I, I think we lucked out. Yeah. I was about to say that luck is definitely with us on this one. 
I like how we start here. Um, and I can never remember this guy's name. I don't have all my screens open, but uh, Monsieur Melville, he's, uh, I would have cast him for this part, even if he, you know, wasn't a friend that was coming on to help out. Sure. Well, and, and um, he gets introduced a couple minutes earlier, so I'm going to assume that the hosts of the time give give a full rundown of him. But this is Roger uh, Vadim, Vadim, Vadim. I'm going to say he's French, yeah, Vadim. That's got to be Vadim. And yeah. uh, he he directed what uh, was it, Barbarella? Barbarella. Yeah. Uh, and and God created women are probably the ones that are best known here in America. Um, a lot of French films. Um, I just I just kind of want to note that the dude. Sounds creepy when you read his bio, right? Like uh, <laughs> a little bit. He's as well known for his relationships with beautiful models and actresses as he is for his directing and, and writing work. He did a lot of writing as well. Right, right. And some highlights of that, um, that he lived with Catherine Deneuve uh as a teenager. She was a teenager, he was not. No. Um and he fathered a child with her at uh at age nineteen. She was nineteen, he was not. Right. Um and, uh, you know, directed, I think he directed some films with and for her, was, I think, married to Brigitte Bardot, associated with Jane Fonda, and directed projects for both of them. And it's got a very, it just feels a little creepy, the, sort of the, like, power struggle of, like, you know, powerful director, young, up-and-coming, uh, beautiful actress, your relationship is tied to this project, which is kind of thing. But, you know, maybe that's a post- me too sort of lens well it definitely was a different time back then but unfortunately sure. it's probably when all this started really kind of coalescing on that part so we're, we're yeah. probably gonna let that go a little bit here though <laughs> yeah i mean there's not not a lot in this movie to to suggest that but i'm just gonna put it out there that it feels creepy to me and uh, and then we'll move on so all right yeah so the the superb man superb man that Monsieur Melville is referring to is Colin Morris. David Bowie. Who is David Bowie? Yeah, right. I, I, I can't uh, uh, think of him as Colin Morris. It's just David Bowie with the bandaid yeah, on right. his face. <laughs> and that's actually a funny story that um, uh, if you watch some of the Blu-ray extras, you'll um, you'll hear Landis talk about um, his, I believe it was Landis, Landis's wife at the time, was the uh, costume director for, for many things, uh, but also this film. And uh, they tried making Colin seem a little greasy, a little shabby. Um, but every time she put him in something just disgusting or oversized or whatever, he still looked good, right? <laughs> so right, right. He is David Bowie after all. So of that's course. how we ended up with the Band-Aid. Um, I, 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 that was a good decision because he did finally come off as just a little bit shabby, just a skosh. Right, with an oversized jacket and a band-aid yeah. on his face. It just made him look shorter than I imagined, but maybe that was Jeff Goldblum. He is kind of short and Goldblum is kind of tall. Um, and I believe there was even some apple boxing, uh, you know, trying in the two shot of them to make him look a little, or at least get him in the same frame. Yeah. So, um, you know, he's a, a thin guy, was a thin guy. Ugh. I can barely even think about David Bowie being gone from us at this point still. But, right. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of holding that off and just walling it off in my mind so we could have this discussion. <laughs> yeah. No. I, and I'm milking this for, for all it's worth. He, David Bowie doesn't have a lot of screen time in this movie. And, you know, we didn't get any minutes with him, but his name is mentioned. So I'm going to talk about it because I'm a huge fan and I'll of course. talk about him forever. So. Since you know a lot more about him than everyone else does, right? <laughs> yeah, clearly. Uh, no, just, a just your regular old obsessed fan. That's, there's, there's plenty of those out there. I'm sure I'm not, uh, not alone. Not you alone. are legion. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah. So 
what happened to our ideal man? Uh, the, the superb man? The yeah, superb he, man, sorry. Well, uh, he and uh, Carl Perkins uh, fell out a window. So, uh, But not before he could tell Monsieur Melville how uh, great he thought Ed was as well. He told me that you were also very good. Right. Did we ever so, discover why they thought that? <laughs> no. No, that's <laughs> just a bizarre... You know, they were sort of following him around uh, as he helped Diana navigate the night of L.A. And, you know, <laughs> they they were watching from a distance, clearly, because they didn't uh, see the just sort of sheer wandering luck that, that happened uh, to get these two through uh, through to this point. So. All right. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe they had some uh, concocted some strange story. Perhaps maybe uh, some of our other hosts had come up with something. I haven't got, gotten to listen to anything past maybe, what, minute 30 or so. Uh, the, I, you know what? I'm not sure if, if I've heard the, um, the Colin Morris uh, uh, minutes yet either. So there's sort of a, a lag between uh, what we're recording now and, and what's been published already. So I'm not sure. If, I don't think I have. So it's, uh, I look forward to hearing that. And then, uh, you know, you, you people who've listened to the whole podcast can insert those comments into your head canon here and uh and just pretend like we said something uh thoughtful about it so sounds good all right sounds good <laughs> yeah so it's it's kind of funny that neither um neither ed or nor diana really know who he's talking about when when he says colin morris so. right and he just thinks that it's them playing games with him and uh you know ed finally realizes like oh the englishman the, the guy who put a gun in my mouth yeah, so but you you can see here Ed starts sort of digging for info. He's he's asking him, "Oh, Colin worked for you?" Um, you know, and he tries to to dig more questions like, "And what's your name, sir?" But uh he is immediately preempted. And this sort of I think is a remnant of the their sort of the sort of dynamic that Ed and Diane bring into this relationship, right? She so they're they're both at a point in their life where they've sort of lost or been cut off from the things that that made their life right like ed's got the very you know home wife job suburban sort of everything right and diana's got the taken care of rich party girl money for nothing kind of everything right so they've got both got everything on but in different styles of of everything i suppose and that it's both been it's been stripped away from both right all right now point. they're at the back of a limo with a guy pointing a gun at them and they're not really sure why <laughs> Well, and and Diana sort of deals with it by trying to protect her own skin, and I think she she exhibits that again again when she says, um, "Well, you'll let us go, right?" And while Ed's trying to dig for information, and he never quite gets to right. that information because of her that always bothered me. I've I've watched through it a couple of times since we got started here, and and uh, yeah, every time she interrupts him, I'm like, "But now we don't know who he is." You know, the audience does maybe, but. Uh, you know, Ed doesn't, and Ed seems to be like the only guy who might might be able to put two and two together in this situation. Yeah, right. He does seem like he's he's got the the long game sort of in mind with his with his digging, whereas uh, Diana's a little more um, in the moment. Let's right. She's a little little more concerned with the body, as it were, of you know the physical well being at that particular. So. Well, she is the one that'll jump on top of a car. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. She's. You know, more willing to do anything at this point to to get to that that survival point. Maybe she's already sort of at her bottom. You know, she's um 
sort of persona non grata in, in a lot of the scene that she had traveled in before. You know, we see her previously not allowed access to, to Jack's boat. She's kicked out of Bud's office. Just a lot of the places where people know her are, are no longer available to her. So she's, she's, you know, already sort of at that bottom where, where I think Ed is, <laughs> I was going to say ramping up to the bottom. Yeah, ramping up to the bottom. Yeah. And <laughs> Which, you know, I think whatever. he's just trying to figure out where the bottom is because he's, he's never been there yeah. before where she's seen it. She understands what it could be, or at least she thinks she does. Whereas Ed's still kind of getting his intro to this whole world. Right. He's slowly realizing how long he's been at the bottom. Right. right? His, his dead end job and his uh, dead end marriage and, and his inability to sleep is just a symptom of all that. I think, uh, I think at the end of this minute, we'll see a little bit of the shift from that dynamic. We'll start to see the, the definitely Diana sort of realizing the shift away from their original dynamic and into what, whatever they are becoming. Right. right. But, uh, she has to make, make a, she's given a decision. That's how the, our minute ends, but we'll get there in a second. Sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, in the meantime, before the end of that minute, Melville lets us in on some more complications of the plot, right? He, he tells us about Shaheen, um, is played by Irini Pappas. Who's, uh, you know, she plays the, the queen pin as it were of, of the, uh, the Persian. Well, this, she's essentially the, the one who sends the Savak out to do all these these terrible deeds that we terribly comedic deeds that we see them do and terribly brutal in, in other points too but which you know it's kind of interesting to see a woman and a persian woman sort of be the the power broker uh bad guy in a, in a movie of this era I, I couldn't really think of too many other like female antagonists like big bads from from movies of this era most of the ones i could think of and you know, that's, this is probably a personal <laughs> a bias to the types of movies that I um, watch. But, you know, the things I could think of were Joan Crawford from Mommy Dearest and Nurse Ratched from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Carrie's mother from Carrie. Sure, sure. Pamela, Pamela Voorhees from the original Friday the 13th were the like female antagonists that I was thinking of, um, which are all sort of supernatural and, and weird. But that's, right. that's sort of not, not watch, quite the same style. Uh, Shaheen yeah. is, is a businesswoman. She's a woman of means. She's she's, uh, you know, like you said, kingpin. She's much more, you know, just in control of her domain. And she has, you know, people and minions and resources beyond, you know, yeah. anybody in the in the movie proper. I think it's interesting because I hadn't seen um, like I said, I couldn't think of too many other other women who um, sort of occupy that space in in um, films that are contemporary to Into the Night. Right, so, and yeah. most of them, like you said, there it's a, a horror film or something, and and you know yeah. they're portrayed as as you know supernatural or psychotic or you know just you know a, a bully of some sort. Shaheen does not uh, come off as you know any of these stereotypes. She seems probably to be the you know among the top uh, rational minds of the movie since everyone is so sure, unhinged right. she's definitely calling some shots as as we we hear here you know that um she's going to require blood to appease her i suppose in this whole transaction and let's take a look at that set of statements i'll need you to appease shine she'll want blood yours will do he says he's not going to let her go or them right it's not clear if she if uh melville's talking about 
Diana that he's not going to let go, whose blood will appease, or if it's Ed and Diana whose blood will appease. And uh, it's not clear if Melville is working with or for Shaheen or if he's an independent broker. I think, you know, that will all come out later. But in this conversation, it's not really clear what the relationship between Shaheen and and Melville is. Um, Well, if we could include the the ending of the minute, I I do have a theory about how that works. Because at the end, he gives her... Uh, he told, asked her, you like Ed, yes? If you're not going to let us go, why should I help you? You're fond of Ed, yes? And he's going to use Ed as his, uh, you know, to hold him hostage while she goes and gets her, her work done in the coming minutes. Um, and so the way that it sounds is that he, when he says, your blood will do, she, he's talking about uh, Diana. I don't think he has right. any any sort of designs on Ed because you know to him Ed is just a you know an enemy operator uh, you know not some someone he's competing against but not someone that Shaheen has any knowledge of that much he seems right. to know already so like Ed is is Diana's Colin yeah right? basically it's like somebody she picked up along the way is helping out but is not right. has never been involved in this in the first place so he uh, Melville is is wanting the, to take the stones and um, leave Diane as basically his sacrifice so that he gets away with the treasure without Shaheen coming for him directly. That's the way right. it sounds to me. And who knows how that would manifest itself, right? Like, does, does he like just leave her murdered, unexplained somewhere with the stones missing? And then Shaheen's like, well, who knows where they are now in the wind? Or, you know, does, she, does he literally take the stones and provide the body to, to appease, you know, like, does he own up to the fact that he's, he's killed Diana, you know, and, and make things right. I, I, it's hard to say like what the plot is and it, it never really does get explained other than the fact that I think later on you see that Melville and Shaheen are not uh, in cahoots. It is definitely an, an opposition. Right. They're completely at, at odds and aggressively. So we'll find out much later. Yeah. After this conversation, uh, the limo pulls up to its destination, and it's not super clear where they are. It's got that generic nowhere-looking spot that you see from a lot of television and, and movies that, that are centered in and around Los Angeles. I'm, I'm thinking of, well, the whole limo, limo ride really kind of reminds me of an episode of The Rockford Files or something like that, you know, where they're sort of driving around with a guy explaining his plans with a gun, and it, it's got that sort of look to it, too, in in so it's traditional, you're saying? <laughs> sure, yeah. And it's honestly like one of the things that the, the, just the look of this setting is one of the things that as a kid who had never been to L.A. but had seen all these movies and TV shows that take place in L.A., it, it made me dislike L.A. even though I'd never been there and had no real knowledge of it. Right. right. It feels kind of dry, desiccated, lots of sun. Yeah, and and lots of just vast nothing, yeah. right? Like not like vast open areas where you might want to go and and spend some time outside doing things. It's like highways, it's, it's highways and sand and scrub and yeah. long low houses that don't look very nice. And yeah, yeah. So I've since been to Los Angeles, and I you know that that's not what it, not what it is really uh, at all. I, I've, I've never been. It still looks like that to me. Oh, oh well, you should go someday. It's nice. <laughs> It, there's there's a lot going on there that uh, there are vast open spaces <laughs> of of brush and highway, but uh, in between there's some nice stuff. So all right, I'll take your word on it. So yeah, we we they pull up 
uh, the limo pulls up and we can see police cars um, and Bud's car. So we see Bud's 85 Corvette. So we know at this point that we are um, at Bud's house where the Savak have already been. Um, so now it's interesting that Ed and Diana, have, who've been chased by the Savak up until this point, are now behind them, right? They're, they're, they're coming where the Savak have already been, sort of. I mean, like, Diana's already seen Christy, Christy and Bud um, before this, but they're physically, you know, behind them at this point. So it's interesting. But uh, Melville peers out the cracked, tinted window and has a bit of a shifty-eyed panic, whereas Diana looks out the window and you can almost see her formulating a plan. Right. She, she's kind of weighing what she can do. She's part, pretty sure that the, the stones are there and that no one will find them. Yeah. But then she's not sure if she's going to be able to get away with them if she's, if she does it. And so, you know, then the final nail in the coffin is what, well, as we stated before, the fact that Melville is going to hold Ed hostage, uh, pending right. her return. And I think, Right at that moment, as he says that, you see Michelle Pfeiffer, you see Diana, her head turn in sort of this exaggerated, like, uh, she's deflated right then, uh, because I think she realizes, and she may have known this until Melville says it, that yes, she is fond of it, right? Like, he has found a weakness that she may not have even known she had um, at this point. You know, she she's, if he hadn't said that to her, she might have gotten out of the car and just like gone to the cops and been like, Hey, there's a guy over there and, and be damned what happens to Ed. Right. But it does give her second thoughts. Definitely. It does give her second thoughts. And I think makes her realize that, that she has a stake in it. That is not just her being taken care of. Right. Like that, that's really her whole motivation through the movie up to this point is to have herself taken care of. Um, and generally by someone else. And so now she gets to a point where she's, got to take care of someone else and she's got to make action to do it. And I, I think that's, I think that head turn and sigh that she makes in the limo is sort of that indication and that realization that she didn't have before. So. Right. It's her admission to uh, feelings for Ed, which, you know, it always seemed like maybe she was just kind of you know, like showing him affection to keep him like string, strung along, you know, as maybe an extra carrot because that's the yeah. way she's used to treating people, even though it yeah. didn't seem to be doing anything for Ed. Yeah, right. He's been literally sleepwalking through it, you know, at, at this point. So, um, or up to this point. But yeah, it's um, it, it's a, it's an interesting turn. You know, it, it's sort of in retrospect more significant than than it actually shows in this minute. But I think that's that's interesting bit, and that's really about the end of that minute. The realization happens, um, and then we see the shot back out to the outside of the limo, and uh, the door opens, and we can't even really tell who's getting out. But you know, if you're paying attention to footwear and jeans, maybe you'll you'll notice that it's Diana. But oh, I had one 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 question. I didn't know if anyone yeah. had found out anything about uh, Melville's associates, especially the one that's staring right into the camera over <laughs> Diane's shoulder yeah. there at the end. Yeah, yeah, sure. I I, I saw a little bit about them there. Um, I, I found a. a promo photo from the film that bills the two of them as his South African henchmen. Okay, then. Which, okay, sure. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Um, every time there's sort of a, a vaguely um, an accent that you can't really tell the, the type of coming out of a white person in, in a movie, 
it always ends up being like, oh, they're South African, right? Of and so Melville's accent could be played as South African, but I doubt it. It's straight. It's pretty straight French to me. But anyway, yeah, I don't know how they decided that they were South African, but that's what the the promo photo said. But that's a digging awful deep. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. no indication in the movie. No, definitely not. But the uh, the guy in the passenger seat is Robert Labasseri, and this movie is his final acting credit on IMDb. I don't know what happened to him. I didn't dig in that deep, but um, he had a a string of of um, roles before that that were things like tough guy and thug and things like that. But he he did play a croton in. The 1969 series of Doctor Who, which is with the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, I think his name was, an uncredited thug in Live and Let Die, which is the first Roger Moore 007 movie. Um, and so those were sort of the highlights of his his acting career. The driver with the cap and the <laughs> the uh, dead into the camera stare was Yacoub Salih, Salah, maybe, I'm not sure, S-A-L-I-H. So accent that how you will. <laughs> But uh, his, he only had one other credit in IMDb, but his Twitter profile um, suggests that he's still a writer, producer, and director of feature films uh, who resides in Nigeria. And most of his tweets were um, politically active in Nigeria, so I'm not really sure um, what movies that are not listed in IMDb. He doesn't talk about them on his Twitter, so who knows? So you, you think that this this gentleman is another one of the uh, the uh, cameo directors, since or was he a director back then? That's a good question. I, he, he's not credited anywhere that I could find, uh, but it, it's possible. It's it's an interesting deep cut. It would be seriously <laughs> if, if that's if what it was is. Going yeah. On here. yeah. So yeah, that's that's uh, those are his uh, henchmen. And uh, driver and bodyguard. Yeah, just some some other notes about this minute. You know, we see some interesting things. Uh, people like to talk about the cars and the guns in in <laughs> some of these movies by minute things. So I will note that that's a Beretta eighty one, um, most likely a thirty two caliber ACP gun that, that Monsieur Melville is brandishing. And the 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 limo they're in is a Lincoln Town Car, uh, early eighties. The the Corvette that we see is Bud's um, 84, maybe 85 Corvette. I always sort of had the thoughts that I was Corvette guy. I liked Corvettes, and I thought at some point I would acquire um, a 1975 Corvette from the year I was born and, like, you know, have it stored or whatever. But, um, yeah, Corvette guys that I've met over the course of my life are not, not me. Like, I am not the same as them, so I'm not sure if I am a Corvette <laughs> guy. I still appreciate them from a distance. Uh, these mid eighties ones I thought were terribly ugly in the mid eighties. Um, but I've grown a little more fond of them now. So whatever. Oh, the motorcycle, the police motorcycle that we see is the Kawasaki KZ 1000 police model. And, uh, I can tell you that this is a 1981 model because it's the only year that the mirrors were integrated into the fiberglass fairing. So, yeah, that definitely sounds like a David detail right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, these are actually pretty cool motorcycles. They were produced from, I think, the late 70s through the mid 2000s um, by Kawasaki. Uh, and a lot of people speculate that they were meant to look like Harley Davidson's. But if you, if you kind of look at motorcycles from back then, <laughs> there really was only one kind of motorcycle. They all kind of looked the same until things started fracturing out into like, you know, race bikes and dirt bikes and things like that. So they, it may have been aping that style, but that's 
Hartleys were not the the popular bikes uh, back then that they are now. They sort of had bad reputation for reliability and whatnot. And so, um, so people like police departments uh, that that needed a reliable motorcycle went to the Japanese motorcycle makers at the time. Of course, of course, because they were reliable. And Kawasaki was able to make the special police edition, which was very similar to the to the road edition of the KZ one thousand. It just had upgraded electronics, essentially, to be able to power the lights and sirens and radios and, and things that, that needed to run on it. And I think it also had some additional cooling to help them run longer in hot areas. So um, you'll see these. They're pretty ubiquitous. Like anytime you see a motorcycle, um, a police motorcycle, it's like a genuine article and not like a you know sci-fi sort of fantasy motorcycle from the 70s through the 90s uh, was probably one of these Um they're definitely in chips. They're in the original Mad Max. Yeah, I was um, about to ask. Yeah, definitely chips. Yeah, <laughs> definitely chips. And, you know, chips was on so long and they went through so many motorcycles that they, they weren't always using period correct ones. But but these were built in Japan, but then generally policified in Lincoln, Nebraska. So it's always the weirdest places where they do the police work yeah. on these vehicles. Yeah, that's um, I think most of the notes I have here. I I think that's about. Do you have anything else that you wanted to to bring up? Uh, no, you pretty much tapped me dry there. So we'll go ahead and close it out. And I I want to I want to say, do you are you familiar with the John Landis "See You Next Wednesday" trope? Uh, vaguely, uh, something about it uh, uh, being something that shows up usually in a movie within the movie or in like like movie posters in the background. Or I heard it was yeah, spoken correct. in German in one film. Perhaps. Oh, interesting. I hadn't heard that, but yeah. So it's a, a line from 2001, a space odyssey, um, where, uh, Frank's parents are sending him a video message and apparently they always send him on Wednesdays and they close it out with see you next Wednesday. And, um, Landis had this idea that he wanted to, um, have a movie that was essentially one long running gag when he never really got it to fruition, but then he incorporated that idea of the movie into all of his other movies in some way, like generally a poster or a billboard for it or an advertisement for it. And there's, there's one in Bud's office uh, when they're trying to make a phone call earlier called see you next Wednesday. And uh, the podcast that covers 2001, which is a great uh, move movies by minute podcast that covers 2001 great podcast called open the doors, open the pod bay doors, how, which I have also guessed it on. So no, no bias there, <laughs> but um, they, they like to sign off um, their podcast is until tomorrow see you next wednesday even though they come out daily so um i'm not gonna do that because it'd sort of be biting their uh their their tagline but i just want to sort of you know pull that back around since it is landis and it is movies by minute and all that stuff so so anyway we'll, we'll do the standard sign off you can find the into the night podcast on itunes spotify and google play or at the main site nightminute.com you can connect with us and all of the other Into the Night Minute producers at The King Lives Listeners Limo on Facebook or on Twitter at Night Minute. Um, so join us here next time on Into the Night Minute. See you next time. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.